All right, everybody, good morning. Good morning. My name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors. I'm glad you're here. Merry Christmas. I'm excited to be here. I'm going to have that song, Hallelujah, stuck in my head all week, and that's fantastic. I can't think of a better song to have stuck in your head as, as that goes. Hey, well, my name's Frank. I'm one of the pastors. I'm glad you're here. Um, we just come here every week, and we just try to learn more about Jesus. And not so much so we'll have head knowledge, but what we find is the more we learn about Jesus, the more we surrender. And the more we surrender, the more we give up our right to be right and allow God to be right, we find our lives changing, and they change for the better in so many ways that we just want to come back and say, thank you, God. And that's really, in many ways, what a worship service is all about. Now, we've been in uh, what we call our Christmas series. It's been an unusual series so far. Uh, the challenge of the Bible is there's really only one story in the Bible. It's one story from beginning to end. It's, it's about the coming of, the arrival of, and the return of the Messiah. Every word, every book, every story in the Old Testament foreshadows the arrival of the Messiah. Every book and every um, event in the New Testament either talks about while he was here or his return. And so from beginning to end, this book written by over 40 authors over 1,500 years is a perfect collection of the story of God. And one of the key thoughts in the Old Testament was that there is a promised one who's coming, someone who will save us from our sins. Now, I realize this has been an unusual Christmas series. Last week, people were like, really? We spent a whole hour on genealogy? Yeah, and we're not done yet. But we're not so much focused on the events of the night that Jesus was born in the sense that, you know, we, we, we study what, what happened. It's more understanding the meaning of the overall mission and why this time every year is so important to us. God wanted to make sure that the greatest event in all of human history would not be missed by those who were looking for it. Throughout the Old Testament, he gave clues. People who were searching for God found these clues, and those that weren't searching for him really didn't. Now, as I've been studying and thinking about this series what struck me is how much God truly loves us. Now, that may sound cliche, but he really did not want us to miss his arrival. I think about how in every aspect of our salvation and of our relationship with him, he does everything. All we have to do is be open to him just a little bit, and he does all the rest. Now, you may be looking at these clues we've been going through and thinking that you would have missed them. They seem too vague. They seem hidden, almost like a riddle. And in this series, we're looking at these riddles, these, these clues by God. And we're gonna, we looked at his genealogy last week. And the reason that we feel that way, like, wow, this is complicated, is, is that we think, wow, I may not have been smart enough to recognize him coming. I may have not understood, but they had, in many ways, these prophecies were known to the scribes and, and priests. Now, it's important to understand that. The arrival of the Messiah was not a surprise. We act like the world was just going, and all of a sudden Jesus showed up. They knew he was coming. Those who studied the scriptures knew he was coming. The scribes and the Pharisees taught the people the law. They knew. 
At the time of Jesus' birth, it was known that the Messiah was due to arrive and due to arrive soon. We're going to cover that today. And he was to come out of the family of Solomon. It wasn't some incredible secret. Much like end time prophecies today. The prophecies aren't secret. They're just not believed by most people. To those who are looking, the Bible, it's obvious what's going to happen in the next 30, 50 years. To those who aren't looking or don't care, they, it doesn't matter. Much as always, what God is doing is open to those who are seeking God and hidden to those who aren't. But God loves us so much that to those who are willing to listen, he announced his arrival. He gave extremely specific clues because he didn't want his people to miss him. And these aren't just hidden clues. They're literally love notes from God put throughout history. And he's basically saying, look, I'm coming, get ready. I can't wait to be in relationship with you again. I'm coming, I'm gonna step into your world. And last week we covered nine prophecies and they were all about genealogy. Not the most exciting thing to study, but very specific. We started with how anybody born on earth could be the Messiah. And now we've narrowed it down a bit. To refresh your memory, God said, he'll be a man, human, not an angel, a real man. Semitic, Abraham. Not from Ishmael, rather he's gonna come from Isaac. Not from Esau, but from Jacob. Of the 12 tribes, keep your eye on Judah. Of all the families of the tribe of Judah, focus on the branch of Jesse. Of Jesse's son, watch the youngest one, David. And of all David's son, keep your eye on Solomon. Now let me pause here and answer a question that's come up, which I love because that means y'all are studying scripture. We reviewed Matthew and we traced the genealogy of Jesus through Joseph. Why would you trace the genealogy of, through Joseph if he's not the birth father? Why does that matter? Well, the answer is, through his adoptive status, Jesus has the same rights as if he'd been the firstborn of Joseph. A firstborn child adopted had the same rights as if that child had been born. In addition, most people didn't believe their story. And they figured Joseph was the dad anyway. The virgin birth story was a bit too much for them to handle, but we know the truth. Jesus was born of a virgin. He was adopted into Joseph's family and lineage. And from a legal perspective, he had all the rights of the firstborn child. And if there's any question about where Jesus' uh, genealogy comes from, he gives us another genealogy in Luke chapter 3. Now, we just learned that the Messiah would come through Solomon, right? David's line. But the genealogy in Luke doesn't have Solomon in it. It says Nathan, David and Bathsheba's son. How can that be? We have two genealogies with different people. Luke 3.23, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli. Joseph's not the son of Heli. We know from the Jewish Talmud that Heli was the father of Mary. This is Mary's genealogy, not Joseph's. Luke documented Mary's genealogy. What Luke is telling us is 
Because the paternal line is in question, that's why he says, as was supposed, the child's lineage was to be considered from the maternal line. Now, these are different because Matthew knew that Jesus would be traced by Jews through his legal title. But when teaching Gentiles, if the fatherhood was in question, they traced the mother. But they weren't allowed to say the mother's name in a genealogy. Okay? So basically, Luke followed Mary's line, the human lineage, while Matthew follows Joseph's line, the legal lineage. And that's why Luke put in his passage, as was supposed the son of Joseph. What he's saying is, since the father is unclear, we're going to trace the mother. But we're not going to mention the mother in a genealogy because Greeks don't do that. So that's basically why those are different. But we're going to move from genealogy now. I'm sure you're all excited about that. The Holy Spirit is narrowing down the possibilities and beginning to zero in on one single human. This is so critical to understand. If you study the scriptures, if you study the Old Testament, there's only one human ever born who could even possibly be the Messiah. And we're going to talk about that a little bit. So basically, the, the two genealogies describe Christ. And when you think about it, it's kind of beautiful because he's fully man and fully God. And one genealogy tracks him through the legal line of the Messiah, the other through his human line. But let's go to some more specifics. When we left off, any descendant of Solomon could be the Messiah. So God continues to reveal the mystery. The questions people would have as they're studying these is, where would the Messiah come from? What signs would signal his arrival? When is he going to come? Well, the next clue we have is the scriptures are very clear that the promised one must be born of a virgin. That's going to narrow it down really quick. Just say it. This promise came from the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, this is a critical, non-negotiable doctrine of our faith. If Jesus was born of a man, he would have been born with a sinful nature, and just like us, it would have been impossible for him to save us or himself. He would have been born an enemy of God and a follower of Satan. He would have been destined to death until the punishment for humans, because of the punishment for human sin. He could not have lived a perfect life because no one in the flesh can do that. He could not be born of a, of a human way eternally. He had to be a man, but he also had to be born of God. His nature had to be pure and spiritual because his body is sinful and human. This one man claimed to be born of the Holy Spirit. He was God's son. He claimed to be from heaven. He claimed to be God. He did things only God could do. If he had not been born of the Holy Spirit, 
his conception and birth would not have been miraculous. He could not have lived a sin-free life. He could not have been the perfect sacrifice for our sins. He would not have been God and he couldn't have saved us. Take the virgin birth away and we are all lost in our sins. The virgin birth is a core, non-negotiable part of our faith. It's not debatable. Do you remember when I, when I say that in our church, we don't separate on the minor things, but we hold to the true, real thing. This is a real thing. It's not some fanciful born of the... He literally was born spiritually on earth, the only human to ever have that happen. But that hasn't kept people from trying to discredit this truth. They can't embrace the supernatural miracles of God because they can't explain them or replicate them. They come from a mindset that says, if we can't explain it, it didn't happen. Interesting, they discredit all things supernatural and miraculous, except for the demonic. Have you noticed that? God couldn't have done something miraculous, but did you see the ghosts? Did you go on the ghost tour? It's amazing to me how people embrace demonic things but then say the things of God are impossible. They discredit all things supernatural or miraculous so they don't have to worry about dealing with the possibility that there's a very real God who does very real God-like things. So this time of year, the History Channel will parade out what they call Bible scholars and they're gonna educate you and they're gonna say this passage has nothing to do with the promised one. They'll make two arguments. This text has nothing to do with the Messiah, and virgin did not mean a sexual virgin. It meant a young woman. First, they argue that, king, that this is being spoken to King Ahaz, that the promise in Isaiah was made just to him, that a young woman will have a child. They further argue that this text has nothing to do with the Messiah. I can't go into all this today, but they ignore the text. They leave out that the text is preceded with, oh, here, house of David. There's a verb tense from singular to plural. He's not addressing a singular Ahaz. He's addressing the entire nation of Israel. It's a Masonic prophecy, Messianic prophecy. The word used here is Alma. It means young woman, they say, not a sexual virgin. So how can we be so sure that this passage means virgin sexually? Three reasons. First, Matthew said so. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they'll call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now you look at that and you say, well, he didn't say that was a virgin versus a sexual. Yes, he did. When Matthew translated this word from the Hebrew in the Old Testament to the Greek in the New Testament, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he, he translated the Hebrew word Alma to the Greek word Parthenos. And you might be going, so what? Well, it's a big deal. In Greek, Parthenos always means sexual virgin 100% of the time. When he translated, there were several other more commonly used terms for young women he could have used. He didn't. He chose the sexual virgin term. 
Second thing is, is that those who lived in that time were expecting a virgin birth, a woman who had not been intimate with a man to have a child. That's what they were expecting. Why? Because they had a Greek translation of their own scriptures called the Septuagint. This was translated 200 years before Jesus ever arrived. So let me explain this to you. The Hebrew words were written in Hebrew. 200 years before Jesus arrives, they were translated into Greek. Okay? When they were translated into Greek, you want to guess what word they used? Parthenos. So even before Jesus was born, the world was expecting a sexual virgin to have a child. Wasn't even in question until it happened. Third reason that this is ridiculous is that Isaiah himself said, the Lord himself will give you a sign. A virgin will give birth. That's a sign from God. He's saying a miraculous thing is going to happen. A woman, a young woman having a child, that ain't miraculous. Well, it is, but that's not the miracle they're talking about. A child born miraculously from a virgin, now that is a sign from God. There is no doubt, please don't pay attention to these fools that are on TV. They're not repeating scripture the way God intended. God gave us clues so that we would not be misled and it's important that you and I are versed in scripture so that we don't get confused. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son named Emmanuel, God with us. It's our 10th clue and it's a doozy. Ask anybody who shows up to be the Messiah, are you born of a virgin? It significantly reduced the field to one person. Someone who's not naturally conceived, but supernaturally conceived. So the questions we have left is where and when does this happen? It leads us to our next clue. The promised one must be born in Bethlehem, in Judea. In Judah, there were many cities. Bethlehem was a nowhere place, nowhere city. God's narrowing down to one little bitty city. The Messiah will be born in Bethlehem of Judea. Micah 5.2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephratah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. Bethlehem Ephrathah. Hasn't really been called that before. Why did God say that? Why did he say Bethlehem of Judea? Well, did you know there's two Bethlehems in Israel? One up in Galilee, one down in Judea. God's being very specific. This child will be born in the Bethlehem in Judea. Now that was very specific because another prophecy that we haven't covered says he will be a Galilean. They would have expected the Bethlehem in Galilee. This prophecy mentions a ruler in Israel, not just any ruler, it says one who's coming from ancient days. There's coming an eternal ruler, one who comes from ancient days. Ancient of days would have immediately turned the Jewish audience to Daniel and his prophecy written 500 years prior. Daniel 7, 9. 
As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. And the court sat in judgment, and the books were open. The Ancient of Days, God on his throne. And David uses the term again to point to our future. Daniel chapter 7, verse 20. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came. And judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. This baby is going to be born in Bethlehem of Judea. He will be from Ancient of Days. He will be an eternal ruler, one who was there at the beginning, one who will be there when there never is an end. He is eternal being. The next thing that we learn is that shepherds will bow down before him. Now, this is unusual. Let me show you the prophecy. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. Desert tribes are always shepherds. They have to keep wandering. They have to keep finding places for the sheep. The desert wanderers are always shepherds. Scriptures say that shepherds will bow down and worship him. That's very unusual. Why is it so unusual? Shepherds are usually young children, usually 8 to 12 years old. Most of them actually were women, girls. They weren't people who typically ran to the temple and fell at their face and worshipped a child or worshipped the Messiah. They had, by that age, had probably failed out of the synagogue if they were men. And it's very unusual that shepherds would bow down and worship. Not that they didn't worship God. They were very godly people. But the idea of falling on your face in front of God was unusual for shepherds. The angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you, the angels say. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Now, here's the problem. We've heard that so many times that it just goes right over us. A baby in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. It's on every Christmas card. Well, not everyone. Some don't mention Jesus at all. But remember, one sign for us was a virgin birth. Now the angels tell the shepherds, here's another sign for you. A baby wrapped in swaddling cloths lying in a manger. That sounds normal to us. We hear it every Christmas. Have you ever thought about how odd that must have sounded to them? A baby in a pig trough? For all they knew, this baby had been dropped off and abandoned. They didn't know what was going on. But if true, if they walk into some random stable and find a baby in a pig trough, that's a pretty good sign. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went in haste and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. I'm sure they were very relieved to see Mary and Joseph. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning the child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up these things, pondering them in her heart. 
And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they'd heard and seen as it has been told them. Why did the angel mention swaddling cloth? That's odd. That was an odd term even for them. Why mention that? Why repeat it? Remember things that are important in the Bible are repeated? Why is that fact so important? Well, I always tell you that Scripture interprets Scripture. Okay? A lot of people jump to the conclusion, well, Jesus was wrapped in some clothing when he went to the grave. That's not a swaddling cloth. It's a totally different thing. It must have foreshadowed his death. No. Scripture interprets Scripture. Swaddling cloth revealed a mother who cares, who cared for her child. It was customary to wash new babies in water, then wash them in salt water, and then wrap them mummified with strips to keep them warm and safe. Swaddling cloths. This fact told the shepherds that this was probably a newborn child. But the prophet Ezekiel, in a very well-known passage, told those in Israel that they had not received God correctly. They should have embraced him and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and they didn't. They rejected him. Ezekiel 16.1, And the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations, and say, Thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, Your origin and your birth are of the land of the Canaanites. Remember the Canaanites? The enemies of God, the pagan people, the wrong line of Noah. Okay. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. That's strike three. And as for your birth, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut. Nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling cloths. You didn't receive God. Jerusalem, nation of Israel, you've rejected God. You were born to cursed pagan people. You never separated from them. You never were welcomed and cared for. You left God exposed, shamed, and, and uncovered. So when the Messiah comes, when God presents himself this time, the lineage is clear. The lineage is pure. The child is received. The child is wrapped in swaddling cloths. He is protected. He is loved by his mother. He's received as a child. The only other time swaddling cloths is mentioned in Scripture is in the Christmas story and this passage in Ezekiel. It is not a coincidence. And Luke even repeats the term to make sure the connection gets made. Jesus is symbolically received. He is wrapped in swaddling cloths, even though he's in a manger. The next clue. There'll be a presentation of gifts to him from kings in Persia. Okay. Psalm 72.10. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Sheba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him and all nations serve him. A few years after his birth, the entire town of Jerusalem would be stirred by these kings who were looking for the promised one. We talked about it last week. How did they know? They knew because Daniel had taught them years before. 
Where would the Messiah be born was the question. They knew, everybody seemed to know, except King Herod. Matthew 2, 3, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Notice what that says. The kings had come from Persia. It's about a six-month journey through the desert. They came because they were following a star because the Jewish king had been born. They knew the scriptures. When Herod heard this, he's troubled. I get that. He's a king against God. But look at what it says. And all Jerusalem with him. They knew the prophecies. They didn't believe, and now he's here. What do you think it's going to be like when Jesus comes back the second time? And all the world realizes he's here, and they're not ready. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ is to be born. And this is a softball for them. Well, in Bethlehem of Judea. Again, not Bethlehem in Galilee. So Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Solomon, now the promised one will be born in a little town in Bethlehem from a virgin. So we know where. What else do we know? Well, we know that great sorrow is going to surround his birth and many children will be killed. That's pretty specific. The prophet Jeremiah spoke of the destruction of the cities during the Babylon destruction in Judea. That prophecy had a fulfillment then and also foretold what would happen with Christ. Jeremiah 31, 15, this says, The Lord, a, verses, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentations and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. When the Babylonians invaded Judea in 586 B.C., they killed everybody. This prophecy foretold of that. But it also foretold of a future day when something very similar would happen. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old and under. That, by the way, tells us it took about two years for the kings to get there. According to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Matthew tells us that Jeremiah spoke of this. How do we know that prophecy was fulfilled here? Matthew tells us. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. This child would be confronted from birth. You would expect a king to be received with honor and glory and the world would celebrate. None of that's happening. And the prophets said it would be that way. The next one that we would see is that the child's going to be called to escape to Egypt. Foretold before it ever happened. Hosea 11, 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Now this prophecy would have puzzled them. We look at it and we go, oh, okay, I get it. They would have said, what? Egypt? Egypt? They're not even Semitic. How could he come out of Egypt? How could he be from Galilee, born in Bethlehem, and come out of Egypt? Matthew 12, 13. 
Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and he took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son. God sent a very young Jesus to Egypt to protect him from being murdered by Herod. When Herod died, he returned. The Messiah came out of Egypt just as God said he would. Now there's another prophecy that I'm going to spend a little bit of time on. And I want to introduce it here and we'll pick it up again as we go. Particularly at Easter in a few months. I want to cover it because in an odd way, though, it's not a specific Christmas prophecy. It relates to the sense of understanding they had about Christmas at the time Jesus was born. You've heard me say several times that people were expecting him. They were expecting the Messiah to arrive on the scene. Those who studied the scripture, we're going to find at Easter, had it down to the day. We're just going to look at the year today. Many who knew the prophecies knew that the Messiah would be on earth soon. Just like today, we have an understanding that if the Antichrist isn't here already, if he hadn't been born already, he's going to be here soon. You just feel it. You know it. I mean, the Antichrist is on earth now. Okay, I'm not surprised. If he's born next week, I'm not surprised either. You just have this sense that it's going to happen. But these prophecies are way too specific. They knew the Messiah would not show up as a full-grown man. They knew that he had to be born and then be raised. Isaiah said he'd be born. They said he'd be born in Bethlehem. He'd be like every other human being. They expected his birth and the announcement of a king at any time. If he was going to be an adult when he becomes Savior, he'd have to be born really soon. Why? It's our next prophecy. The promised one would arrive at the temple in Jerusalem in 33 A.D., and be presented to Israel. That's pretty specific. Scriptures tell us that in 33 AD, the Messiah will show up at the temple in Israel to be examined by the priests as the Lamb of God for the sacrifice of Passover. We'll get into all that at Easter. 33 AD? That's pretty specific. How do we know that? I told you they'd get specific. I told you last week he would have to present himself to Israel and be cut off. It's called the prophecy of 70 weeks. It's found in Daniel chapter 9. It's the most specific prophecy in the Bible related to the arrival of the Messiah. It's going to take a bit of math. How many love math? I love math. Okay, it's going to take some math. But we're going to get through it and it's going to be okay. All right? Because in the scriptures, there are clues that tell us, not not these subtle sort of clues that tell us this is going to happen. Daniel chapter 9, verse 25. Know therefore and understand. Now when you see know and understand, what it means is know and look deep. Because there's a meaning to this I want you to get. From the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of the anointed one. Okay, so what he's saying is, there's going to be a decree to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, okay? 
Now, this is Daniel speaking. He's exiled in Babylon. The temple has been destroyed. Okay? What Daniel is saying is there's going to be a day in the future when a decree goes out to go to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. That had to be an amazing prophecy by itself for people who were exiled in Babylon. He says, so from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of the anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Okay, now in prophecy in the Bible and in Jewish custom, seven weeks was a way of saying seven years. Okay. So we have seven years. For 62 weeks, it will be built again with squares and a moat, but in a troubled time. And after 62 weeks, the anointed one will be cut off and shall have nothing. Look at what this says. This passage says that there's going to be two sets of weeks, seven and 62, 69 weeks. At the end of that, the Messiah, the anointed one, will be cut off, killed, destroyed. Okay? Seven sevens or 49 years, then six sevens. From the decree to rebuild and restore Jerusalem to the anointed one, there's going to be 69 sevens. That's 483 years until the promised one is cut off or killed. 483 years. Do the math. It doesn't work. If anybody's got a calculator out, it didn't work. Here's the way it works. King Artaxerxes issued the decree in Nehemiah in 444 B.C. Okay? 444 B.C. You add 483 years to that, you don't come up with 33 A.D. Hmm. Well, here's the problem. The Jewish people use a calendar that's 360 days. Okay? They have a 360-day calendar. We use a calendar that is 365.24. Okay, so our calendar is based on 365.24 days. So instead, we're just going to count the days because the years are different. It turns out that 483 is 173,880 days. You're all glossing over, aren't you? It's not a word problem, but I'm going to get to the end and you're going to go, whoa. 1,000, well, 173,880 days in our years is 476 years, okay? Now, 444 BC is a zero year. From that time forward, one year goes by, that's one. So you had a whole year that was a zero. The year, the first year of a new decade, the year Jesus was born is a zero year. Jesus was born, so that's not year one, that's year zero, and it goes on. 444 B.C. plus 476 years is 33 A.D. The Messiah will present himself to the temple in 33 A.D., 69 weeks from the decree that went out in Nehemiah. Now, if we were down with a piece of paper, we could go through this math and you would go, wow. Wow. At Easter, we're going to go through this again, and I'm going to show you that not only did he say the year, he said the day and the time the Messiah would present. And that when Jesus came in on Palm Sunday, they were expecting him on that day. That's why they had palm leaves. That's why they shouted Hosanna 
The prophecy has been fulfilled. The Messiah has presented himself to the temple on the exact day he said he would. We'll get into it. But for that reason, they knew and expected that the Messiah would be presented and something would happen to him in 33 AD, which meant if he was going to be an adult, he had to be born pretty soon. That's why they were anticipating. For now, just know that they were expecting the Messiah. This was not a surprise to those who were looking. The last one I just want to mention, because I did an entire series on this last year, is that this Christ would be filled with power and peace and a spirit from above. That people would look at this child and say, there's never been another person on earth like this. Isaiah 9, 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore the zeal of the Lord will do this. Note that this prophecy does not say he will call himself these things. The prophecy says people will see these things in him and call him this. Only one man in all of human history can be called these four things. Wonderful counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Only one man ever born in all of humankind sits over the throne of David for all of eternity and can serve with true justice and righteousness. From the moment of the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden, God has been planning the arrival of his son. He prepared every detail. The scriptures tell us in the fullness of time Jesus was born. Many in the world were expecting him. God did everything he could do to foreshadow his arrival. Every story in the Old Testament points to the Messiah. All the prophecies, all the teachers of the law, all the prophets, they all spoke of him. In these 15, don't miss that we have heard from Jeremiah, Isaiah, Micah, Daniel, Hosea, Nehemiah, Samuel, and several psalmists. We've also heard from the writers of Deuteronomy and Chronicles and Numbers, and that's just from reviewing 17 prophecies. No other human being could fulfill these 17 prophecies related to their birth. Jesus will fill over 300 more in his lifetime. You can't study the Bible with an open mind and a heart and miss him. It's impossible. We're going to talk about that Christmas Eve. If you're just open to the idea that God's word is true, God will meet you there. God promised only one Messiah. He made sure that those who cared enough to study the promises of God would know him. He wanted to make sure that when people like us looked back, it would be obvious who the Messiah was. He loves us so much that he wanted to make sure that we were looking. If we were looking, we would find him. And he does the same thing today. If you seek me with all your heart, you'll find me. So here's what he tells people. The promised one, the savior of the world will be a man. He'll be Semitic. He'll be from Abraham, not Ishmael, but rather Isaac. Not from Esau, but Jacob. Of all the 12 tribes, keep your eye on Judah. Of all the families of the tribe of Judah, keep focused on Jesse. 
of Jesse's son, watch the youngest one, David, and of David's son, keep your eye on Solomon. He'll be one from Solomon's line that is born from a sexual virgin in Bethlehem, not the one in, Gal not the one in Galilee, the one in Judea. Shepherds will bow and worship him. You'll find him wrapped in swaddling clothes, in love, in a manger. Kings of Persia will bring him gifts. Oh, by the way, specifically gold and frankincense. Children will die and mothers will wail around the time of his birth. He'll come out of Egypt. He'll arrive at the temple to be examined and rejected on Palm Sunday in 33 AD. And people will call him Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. If those aren't specific enough for you, God gave another 339 that Jesus fulfilled in his earthly ministry to make sure there's zero doubt. Of those, 28 occurred on the day of his crucifixion alone. God clearly clarified Jesus as the Messiah. That's why he's the only way to the Father. When you go to all this trouble to bring the Messiah into the world, why in the world would you think there's another one? Jesus himself in the garden asked, is there any other way? God, is there any other way? And God didn't say, oh, well, Muhammad's coming. Buddha's coming. Scientology's coming. No, he said, this cup has to be drunk. If our people that we love are gonna be saved, you have to save them. There's no other way. This Christmas story is incredible. When you move beyond some of the stories and actually focus on the scriptures, let's pray. God, I thank you that you love us, that you wanted us to get you. Just even with a minor move of our heart towards you, you rush in and you meet us there. God, I pray for those that may hear this sermon who are close to you. Many have rejected a book they've never read. Many have rejected a God they've never tried to understand. God, I pray that in some way you'd bring them here on Christmas Eve so that we could help share with them the reason why we have the hope that we have so that we can understand that for unto us a child is born and what this is all about. God, I think all of us have family members and loved ones who have stiff-armed you. We have people that have never read the Bible but rejected it outright. People who get their truth from the History Channel. God, would you find a way to open the door for them this season? If possible, Lord, let us play a role in that. God, we want people to know why this season is so incredible. why Jesus is the only way. So God, thank you for Christmas. Thank you for the reminder. Thank you for your word and your promise, and thank you for being faithful. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.